Well, what I'd like to do this morning is start with uh, introducing you to someone, and then you can do a little bit of analysis in your mind to see how you would evaluate their spiritual condition. How might you evaluate where they are in their journey with Christ? You'll see the quote come up on the side screens. Here's what it says. On review of my life, I find much, very much, for which I ought to be humbled in the dust. My direct and positive sins are innumerable. My negligence in the Lord's work has been great. I've not promoted his cause nor sought his glory and honor as I ought. Notwithstanding all this, I am spared till now, and I trust I am received into the divine favor through him. Just take a moment. In your minds, you've heard the quote. That's all you know about him. Where, do you, where is he on his journey? Where is he in his relationship with God? As you're thinking about that, my name's Jeff Bennett. I have the privilege of being the lead pastor here at Harbor. If I don't get to say it personally to you this morning, just welcome. So good to see each of you here today. And to our Harbor Online community, welcome to you. Wonderful to have you a part of our service today and our church and what God is doing here in our midst. So, you look at the quote, the author says, my, my direct and positive sins are innumerable. My direct and positive sins, what we would call this is what he's marking, is his sins of commission. What he has done, and he's sort of giving a review of his life, this was at 70 years old, saying, you know, there's a lot of them. I can't even count them. They're innumerable. And then we would also say what he's marked in here is the sins of omission, the things he failed to do that he should have done. And here's what he says. My negligence in the Lord's work has been great. I have not promoted his cause nor sought his glory and honor as I should. And so sins of omission, things he could have done but did not do. And here's what I would mark is he's looking at God and he's looking at himself and he's realizing he's not measuring up. He's falling short. That to some degree, God is, God is here and he is away from God. He is far away. Now, before we're too hard on him, you take a moment and reflect on your own journey and your own life and your own sins, the direct innumerable ones, the things that you have done or the things of uh, omission, the things that you have not done. And I think you could probably maybe feel like if you were humble and honest with yourself, there's some distance between you and God, that you don't measure up to God's standard, much like we think this author is feeling. And if we take a moment and we can sort of get to a low point all by ourselves, where God feels far away, where his standard feels high, and we feel that we have fallen short, where there's a distance between us and God, we feel like his presence is not there, we feel like he is absent. And we can get there all on ourselves by reflecting on our own journey, but we also can get there another way. It's slightly different, but sometimes things just happen in life. Situations come up, family does something, uh, we hear a medical diagnosis. There can be all sorts of different ways, but we arrive in the same spot where we feel like God is far away. There is an absence of God 
in our lives. He feels distant. So whether it's reflecting on our own journey or whether it's the trouble and the circumstances life brings us, we can arrive in that same spot. We could call it the wilderness, or this morning what we'll see is it's called a desert. A desert where the emotions and the turmoil and the pain of our souls and our life, it feels dry, we spiritually dry, we feel like God is far away. And there's a plea and a desperation. God, where are you? So who is today for? Today is for anyone that has ever sensed the absence of God in their life. Today is for anyone who God has ever felt far away. And again, there's different ways we get there, whether reflecting, as the author says, in our many and innumerable sins, or because of the circumstances of our lives. If you've ever felt that way, then today is for you. And then the question is, well, what in those moments should we remember? What should we do? What should we say? How might we respond when God does feel absent, when he feels far away? Well, we come this morning to a psalm, Psalm 63. In fact, in A.D. 400, one of the early church fathers wrote, he wrote this, that no Christian should let a day pass without the public singing of this psalm. Psalm 63 is where we end up today, and it is a psalm, and if you can find it in your Bibles, uh, Psalm 63, if you're not familiar with your Bible, Psalms is right in the middle. If you've got a paper Bible, you can open it up and you'll pretty much hit Psalms. If English is your second language, P-S-A-L-M-S is how we spell Psalms. If you've got the digital Bible, then it's P.S. We're going to 63, and I just want to highlight, again, we often don't even highlight this or talk about it. Right under Psalm 63, there's a little line where it says, a psalm of David when he was in the desert of Judah. Do you see that there? A psalm of David. So David wrote this, but it also tells us where he was when he was in the desert of Judah. And so David is writing from a literal desert, but he's using it to talk about his spiritual condition. And let me just tell you why he was in the desert, why he was in the wilderness. We'll learn later on in the psalm that he was the king. And so why is the king now in the desert? Well, what we know from reading in other places in the Bible that there had been a coup attempted. David is the king of Israel. He's reigning over the superpower of the world, probably one of the richest and most powerful men in the world. And there is a coup in his nation, and he flees for his life from the city of Jerusalem out to the desert to try to save his life. Him and his advisors are on the run. So if you're looking for a crisis moment that may make you feel far from God, this is a pretty good crisis. Right? You're the king of the, of the nation, Israel. You now have lost everything, seemingly. You're running for your life because you feel you may die and lose everything. Now, some of you know the story. It's more than just he's, there's a coup. It's who the coup is being led by. And you know, some of you know the story that the coup is being led by Absalom, David's oldest son. And so not only... Are you running for your life because there's a coup against you and your kingdom? But the coup is being led by your oldest son, one of the closest people to you in the world. Just think as a father, 
how you would feel in that regard. Just think of any close family member who rises up against you to betray you and take all that you have. In fact, it's hard to think of a modern example of a son committing such an egregious act against a father. This is sort of unheard of, that a son would rise up to take the kingdom for your dad. So now you see the wilderness he's in. Not only is the coup happening, but it's by his son. And you could see how you would feel, God, where are you in this? And then there's a third part of this. Some of you know this. David, in his early life, he had committed adultery. He had sinned, he had sinned against God, and he had committed murder, tried to deceive an entire nation. And here's what we know from those stories, that there was a ripple effect of David's sin out into his life and into his family and into the kingdom. And so I'm not trying to take away Absalom's responsibility for what he's clearly doing wrong in the coup, but here's what David also knows, that some of the consequence of my sin, my past direct and positive sins are innumerable. David is feeling like when he's in the wilderness, he's paying the price. He's paying the consequences. He knows God's total forgiveness, but he's still paying the ripple effects out of his sin. So that's where he is in the wilderness. It's both of these things all combined. It's, it's his direct and positive sins which he's feeling the weight of. It is all the crisis that's happening in the kingdom. It's all the betrayal coming for his son. And all in this moment, David writes Psalm 63. He writes these words in this moment in the desert when God feels absent, when God feels far away. So let's start this morning. Let's just read the psalm. Let me just read it for you so you can get a sense. We'll do the first eight verses. Here's what David says. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I have seen you in your sanctuary. I have beheld your power and glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you for as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. I will be satisfied as with the richest of food. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you, your right hand upholds me. Let me just offer a word of prayer. God, we see these significant words that David pens when he feels so far from you, so absent. And God, as we would look into these this morning, oh God, may you speak to our hearts. May you encourage us, I pray. Just this morning, want to look at, amen, I just want to look this morning at the first verse. At the first verse, we'll do the rest of the psalm over the next couple of weeks. Look at the first verse, what's three things we learn from David when God feels absent, and then at the end, three quick little application points for us as a church as we prepare for fall ministry. First line of the psalm then, first line, what do we learn? Here's how David starts. 
He's in the wilderness. All this is happening. See what he says? You, God, are my God. You, God, are my God. What's the first thing out of his mouth? You think of all the stuff that's swirling, all the emotions, all the turmoil, all that's going on, and David just says, God, I'm putting my feet solidly on you as my rock. God and God alone, nothing else and nothing more. Right? He opens up in the midst of probably the worst crisis of his life, and he's just saying, God, I'm just standing on you. You are God. And it would be enough if he wrote, God, you, God, are God. That would be a wonderful declaration, wouldn't it? Okay, God, I'm in crisis. You are God. You are powerful. You are above all. You are sovereign. God, you are God. But that's not what he says. Do you see what he says? He adds a word, and it's so instructive. It's so helpful. He says, you, God, are my God. You are my God. You know, that little word gets added, and it means so much. You know, we go around the church today, we'll see lots of children, lots of children back here in our kids' area and down in the power-up area. Uh, but as you see all those children, parents, you're going to say, oh, we have a lot of children, but then parents, you're going to say this, oh, these are my kids, right? You're going to add the my to describe your children, or you might say, the children might say, or you might say this morning, oh, these are my parents, or this is my aunt, my uncle, my niece. We don't use the word my very often we, when we use it with people, but when we do, it implies a close, personal, intimate relationship. This is my, and here's what David comes. And he says, God, you are my God. It's not just God, you are God, but in the midst of all that's going on, I know that I have a close, intimate, personal relationship with you. And we just pause and we ask ourselves, you know, are we like David? In the midst of a crisis, do we just run to God? Are we just driven out of the desert and the wilderness of our circumstances to cry out to God and say, God, you are the rock beneath my feet. God, you are my God. You are my God. So here's the first thing we can know when God feels absent, when God feels distant. It's just this wonderful promise. It's this. Here's how I summarized it. First line of first verse, we can know God personally. We can actually know him personally. And that's where David goes. It's not just a general idea of who God is. It's God, you are my God. And again, I just asked this morning, do you have this kind of relationship with God? Have you made sort of this decisive commitment, this declaration in your heart that not just God is God, but that he is your God? Here's what the Bible reminds us of. We all are in a spot in life where God is far from us. We are not in relationship with him. We are distant. We can't make our way there because of our sins of commission that are innumerable and our sins of omission, of our neglect of all the things. But yet in that state, being separated from God, he makes a way for us to be in relationship with him, and that's through Jesus Christ. Jesus comes and provides a bridge so that we can know God personally. We don't get to God by our own effort. We don't get to God by our good works. We only get there by Jesus and what he did on the cross for us. And that's what we mark here, that David is saying, he's saying, even though my sins in the past are innumerable, I know God is my God because he has bridged the gap between me 
and him. If you've never come to God like that, if you could never say, God, you are my God, wouldn't this morning you trust in Christ? Wouldn't you say, it's not my own effort, it's not my works, it's not my goodness, it's only Jesus, and Jesus, I put my trust in you, bring me into right relationship with God so that you could leave here declaring, God, you are my God. That's the first thing that David says. We can know God personally. But then look down on the next line. What's the result of that? Now that he's in relationship with God, he's just declaring that. Nothing has changed. The crisis is still going on. He says the next line, earnestly I seek you. Diligently I seek you. I search for you. Every Bible translates this word earnestly, except the King James Version, which translates it early. I think they're both good translations. Early and earnestly I seek you. How do you know if you've met the real God? How do you know if you have encountered God? How do you know if you're God? You know, if you can say you are my God, how do you know that? Because your heart is compelled to want to seek after him. We know that David knows God because he wants more of him. Now, let me just create a little problem here and a little tension and then try to answer it. Other places in Scripture, here's David saying this, earnestly I seek you. Now, other places in Scripture, David wrote, no one seeks God. In fact, if you go to Romans, Paul quotes David in Romans and says, no one is good, no one is righteous, no one seeks God. So you see the little bit of a problem here we have. One point David says, no one seeks God. And now David says, earnestly I seek God. You might want to say to David, David, which is true? Because you would be part of the no one, which is true. Let me answer it this way and then explain it. They both are true. They both are true. Let me tell you how they both are true. In our state apart from God, no one seeks God. No one is able, no one is capable of seeking after God. Jesus told us this very thing. He said in John 6, no one comes to Jesus, no one comes to him unless the Father draws him. So no one comes to Jesus unless God draws us. Quinn, so appreciate your testimony, right? You're trying to figure it out. What does Jesus mean? And all of a sudden, God opens your eyes. He begins working in you, and you saw it. You didn't say, I did all this work. I figured out all these things. No, God just opens our eyes. No one is seeking God. But then he draws us to Jesus, and we see what he has done for us. And then as we see that, God keeps working in us and keeps drawing us to Jesus, and we keep seeking him. So it's true both ways, because David's saying, in and of myself without God, I would not be seeking after him. But now he has opened my eyes, I'm in relationship with God, I'm seeing him, and now I, I want more of what I have uncovered. So the order is really important. The order of these two lines is really important. David doesn't say, I sought God, and now I'm in relationship with him. He says, God, you are my God. I've come to you, I'm in relationship, and now out of that, I am seeking you. The Bible does not tell us that us finding God is a result of our seeking. The Bible says that us seeking God is as a result of us having already found him. If you have a desire for God in your life, if you have a greater desire for the work of God, for the presence of God, that is a mark that God is working amongst you. 
that God is at work there. And so all of that background to say, when God is at work in us, how do we respond? We respond like David says. This is David's side. That's what he writes. Earnestly I seek you. He's, he's not passive in this. He's not saying, well, God, you're creating a desire for me, and so now I'll just relax. No, he says, earnestly, God, I'm going to respond to what you are doing. You've helped me find you, and now I want more of you. And so what should we remember when God feels absent, when God feels far? The first point was we can know God personally. We, we actually can have a close personal relationship with God through Christ. But here's the second idea is we should seek God earnestly. We should seek God earnestly. That's the work of God in our lives that we should pursue after him. So we can know God personally. We, can, we should seek him earnestly. And if you're following along the logic of that, you, if you hadn't read it already, you'd think the third one was going to be really, we find God. But that's not what David says. Look down. It's sort of a surprise in verse 1, how it ends. Here's what David says. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. David is back talking about the desert here. He's in a literal desert, but he's saying it feels like a spiritual desert as well. I feel dry and weary and waterless. I'm thirsting for more of you, God. I'm longing. I'm unfulfilled. My entire being is just longing for more of God. You see the unfulfilled nature there of this psalm. This is a psalm of longing. This is a song of David thirsting after God. As you keep reading, you'll see he reflects back on his past. And right there at the end, we didn't read it. He looks forward in confidence. But in the present, in this psalm, it's known as a psalm of longing. They, God is absent and David is just longing for more of him. That's why he writes, I thirst. You know, if you were to meet someone today, someone comes to your house and they say, oh, I'm hungry, what would you think? How would you figure that? You would say, oh, you're hungry, you have an absence of food in your stomach. If they were to say, I'm thirsty, you would think, oh, they have an, an absence of drink, of beverage, of water in their life. In the same way, when David says, I thirst for God, he's saying there is an absence of God in my life and I long for more of it. So, let me give the third idea. The third idea, you know, we seek, we can know God personally, we seek God earnestly, and then the third idea is this. We do sense God's absence deeply. We do sense God's absence deeply. That's where David's at. David feels this longing, the farawayness of God. Now, there's a great encouragement here for you, a great encouragement that, that we have to, that I just want to, again, maybe this is not that encouraging. It is a reality statement that at times we do feel God's absence, but how might there be an encouragement in this? No matter how you get to this point, whether it be reflecting on your own sin or whether it be the circumstances and trouble, and David's got both of these happening, but here's what we know. In order for David to sense the absence of God, it means that God is working in his life. That's what we talked about earlier. We don't sense God's absence unless God is working. So in order for David now to be wanting to seeking God, it must be God who is creating the seeking. 
In order for David to be longing for God, it must be God who is creating the longing. So here's the lesson here. Tim Keller summarized it better than anyone else. Here's, and I altered it a bit, but here's, here's our lesson. The sense of God's absence is a sign of God's presence. The sense of God's absence is a sign of his presence. Go talk to David in this moment, and David's going to say, oh, all this crisis has happened in my sin, my son, the nation. He's going to say, where is God? I'm just thirsting for more of him. And what could we say? David, the only way you feel, the only reason you feel that way is because God is right here with you, creating a longing and a thirsting for him. When God feels absent, he is actually present. God's absence is his presence. So this is wonderfully helpful. This is wonderfully helpful. Some of you are going to need to write this down, spend some time thinking about it. It's wonderfully helpful because next time you feel the absence of God, next time you feel that God is far away, here's the thing, you wouldn't feel that way. It wouldn't bother you. You wouldn't be upset about it unless God was right there with you, working in you, creating that. So if you came in this morning sensing the absence of God, sensing this longing for him, oh God, you're so far away. Where are you? He's right there creating that desire in you. And as you remind yourself of that, you can encourage yourself and suddenly see God in the midst of that. Let's go back to our quote. Let's go back to our quote. You remember I asked you to analyze this person's spiritual condition. You may have known it was a trick at the beginning. But again, it ends so well. The last two words really help us, right? What's he counting in? Through him, through Christ. So we saw in there a little bit that this author was counting in Christ. But here's what I would say we know about this author. We know that he is moving towards God we know that he's moving towards God. Why? Because he feels far from God. We know that God is working in his life because he's feeling the weight of who he is. He's knowing himself and he's knowing God. And that's an indication of God's work in your life. If you want to know who this quote is, it's William Carey, who we call the father of modern missions, written when he was 70 years old. In 1793, he went to India and over 200 years later, his work in the evangelization and, and discipleship and church planning in India is still felt today. And this is how he reflected back on his life. And as we see his self-knowledge and his knowledge of God, we see that the way his soul was wired, it, we, it proves that the way we know we're moving towards God is when we feel far from him. And so here's my heart this morning. Here's my heart. That, day, that God may use David's words to stir in us a greater desire to seek after God, a greatest earnestness to pursue God, that he would work that in us as individuals and in a church. And so I just said I wanted to give three just real practical ways that we could all do this. I hope you'll do all three. But if you don't do all three, I, I, please choose one. Please do one. And before I tell you what the three are, let me just give an illustration as I sort of prayed through and processed this. And uh, Quentin drove here on Friday from 
Montreal, and he was going to rent a car, and they ran out of cars, so you gave him this wonderful Jeep, didn't you? That was great. We, we drove around yesterday in this nice Jeep. It was really nice. I drive a minivan, so anything that's like 2000 and, uh, 2019 or whatever it was was great. I was like, wow, I didn't know they make vehicles like this. So we're driving around. It was really, really. But when, when you go home, you're, that's that, in that nice Jeep, you might put it on cruise control and just sort of go along there on that, whatever that seven-hour journey is to Montreal. Some of you know cruise control on the car. You know, you sort of push a button, set the speed, and the car just goes along. You still have to do some work, you know, but it's certainly less work and less energy. Cruise control is nice. It, for those of you that like it, it's consistent, it's predictable, it's comfortable. Cruise control on a car is nice. But as I thought about cruise control on a car, I also thought, you know, we can also get to cruise control in our spiritual lives where things just are easy and predictable and consistent. And not all of you may be there now, but I know that is the tendency. This is how I've sought God. And David says, I seek God earnestly. And we could say, you know, I just seek God easily. I seek God consistently, predictably. And I think what God has stirred in my heart from this psalm, and as I've tried to memorize it over this last year, was just the earnest and the thirsting for God. So for anyone on spiritual cruise control, can I give sort of three applications that are designed to sort of spur us out of that? If you know me, you're probably thinking I'm going to put on the list, read your Bibles and pray. They, they're actually not on the list, not because I don't think they are the first two we should be doing all the time, but I wanted to try to choose some different things that we don't normally do, some practices that may stir us out of any comfortability. So here they are. You'll see them on the side screen. Here's the first one. Would you read this book, The Discipline of Grace? written by Jerry Bridges in 1994. It's an old book, but it's so good. The first half talks about grace and just how we know God. And then out of there, Jerry gives some ways, some disciplines that we would seek God. And they're surprisingly different to what you would expect. Some of you maybe haven't read a book in the last year. Some of you haven't read a Christian book in the last year. Would over the next year... Would you get this book and would you read it? Would you just read it slowly, work through each chapter and understand what Jerry is saying and let it seek into your life about earnestly seeking God? It's available on Kindle. We've got a, a few for sale at the welcome desk. More coming this week, $25. Sign up and pay today if you want to make sure you get a book. Lord willing, more will be here next Sunday. That's the first thing. Second thing is, would you memorize in the next two weeks, Psalm 63, first eight verses? I'm mostly there. Tried to do it this morning. Cheated a little bit. I'm glad for that back screen. But the goal is, that over the next two weeks, memorize Psalm 63. It's a discipline we don't often do, but just let Psalm 63 sink into your heart. Next Sunday, we'll start the message by just standing together and saying the psalm together. It will be on the side screens if you haven't memorized it, so it's okay. But if you have memorized some of it, then you can just look forward and we will say it all together as a way to practice. So memorize Psalm 63 over the next two weeks. And then a one-day application, fast. As some of you know, we spend every first Wednesday as a church fasting and praying, where we just take time off from food and we seek God. And so I'm asking that this first Wednesday, coming September 1st, we would all fast and pray. Now, I know some of you, because of work or health, aren't able to participate. I know, there's, and there's lots of grace for you. There's lots of grace. 
But what I would ask is all of us, don't try to find a way out of this. Try to find a way into it, to participate in it. Would you set aside one meal and fast on September 1st? One meal and seek God. You see, we've put a little handout together, actually two of them. One with the memory verse on it so you can take it home. Number two on why we fast and how we fast. And so may you might, if you've never fasted before, take a supper off and fast and pray. If you fasted for a meal, fast for a day. If you fasted for a day, fast for 36 hours, fast for two days. In fact, here would be my request as we come to the fasting. May you fast more than you ever have before. Let's earnestly seek God together. I'm hoping that as we look in on this psalm today and over the next two weeks, that God will create in us an understanding of all that he's done for us and a thirsting and a hungering after him. So I'm trusting we'll read, we'll memorize, we'll fast, we'll pray together as a church. Let me uh, pray for us. God, we pray this morning as we see David His appetite is so strong for you. He's thirsting after you. And so, God, we pray, Lord, only you can create that in us. And so, God, we desire, Lord, to thirst after you. We desire to earnestly seek you. And, God, may you create that heart in us, I pray. And, God, may we run into these practical things that increase our appetite. And, oh, God, help us stay away from things that suppress our appetite. And so, God, grow are thirsting and hungering for you as individuals and as a church this week, we pray. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen and amen. Well, we always end our service with four words uh, just to encourage us on the mission we have. Please don't forget to give Quentin your email to introduce yourself to him. But as we go, Harbor, we are sent.